0: Welcome to episode number seven of That 60s Recording Podcast. Uh, My name is Joe Montague and I am your host. Um, I hope you've all had a lovely couple of weeks. Um, I'm recording this on my birthday today. Hey, I won't tell you how old I am because I'm officially moving into the getting old category. (laughs) Um, Maybe I wouldn't say I'm getting old, but I'm uh, I'm certainly not a young man anymore. Anyway, (laughs) okay. so today we are chatting to um I can't even believe that I'm about to say who we're chatting to to Alan White um who is a legendary drummer um with Yes um, played on John Lennon's Imagine album um and he played on George Harrison's All Things Must Pass album and he's the longest serving member of Yes um, so in in the the episode today we discuss how he started out um playing in covers bands in the northeast um before entering a competition that was judged none other than by Ringo and Brian Epstein which is uh I mean that must have been uh, insane. I I can't imagine a modern day equivalent of that that's that's madness. Um and I ask him about um how he felt Um, going over to Canada to play with um, John Lennon on No Rehearsals um, and then finding himself playing on um, some of the most seminal albums of all time. Um, And then then we we take a little slight detour (laughs) into some bird watching, which is kind of interesting. Um, and I should also mention that you'll hear um Alan's wife Gigi is there as well. Um I think she sat in the background of the the conversation, but she um she has a few things to say um towards the end. Um and uh yeah, I hope you enjoy it. They were both absolutely lovely. Um I say say this every week about all of my guests. Um, but I, I can't believe how generous um so some of these people are with their time and their stories. And, um, you know, it's a real privilege to get to speak to these people. Um, and, you know, somebody of Alan's stature uh, to give up some time to speak to me about his experiences is uh, uh, to say I'm grateful is an understatement. Um so I really hope you enjoy listening to this conversation. Um, so here he is, Mr. Alan White. If it's all right with you, I, I, I want to speak to you mainly about growing up. Um, through the 60s and playing music um, influenced by uh, sort of beat music that was coming out and then your journey through the 60s into the early 70s uh, sort, yeah. of, sort of culminating in, in joining Yes
1: You started on the wrong foot there because I haven't grown up yet <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, just, I think um, all musicians are a bit like that, we all like to think we are Of
1: course they are, yeah um, when you get to do something you're successful uh, you're through your, your whole life uh, doing something you really enjoy doing you, you know it's like the perfect world for a lot of people
0: absolutely That's a- yeah. um, so am I right in thinking that you started playing piano first before drums
1: yeah um, when I was six I started taking piano lessons Okay, and that you know, good knowledge of uh, melody and kind of so it helped me a lot. I still play now, and I write some of Yes stuff on on the piano, and that um, it was a good kind of. They always say it's good to have two instruments, but uh, piano and drums are about the two best ones I can think of. Uh, because of the percussive feel.
0: I'm, I tend to agree with you. I, I started on piano uh, at age 8 before taking up drums at about the same time as you, about 12. Um, so I'm, uh, I, uh, I, I, w- I want to agree with you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so um, as a result, in my style of drumming during the later years and through my teens and into my, into the trendies you know i maintained a sense of melody in the drumming i did so
0: i think i that's something i i if i was to describe your drumming that's definitely something i mean you're a you're a song drummer um for sure if you i, I hope you don't mind me saying and uh, i'm sure that that comes from um I think, it comes from having a great knowledge of melody and harmony and, and not worrying too much about technicalities of drums, just worrying about playing to the song.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and it's actually because you have that education in, in melody. Um, it adapts you to be able to read into what the drums should be doing on individual tracks. Stuff like
0: that. Yeah. So you got your your kit at age twelve. Do you Do you remember what that kit was?
1: Uh well, I had an Ajax when I first started. Um, but it was I don't know if you've heard of Ajax. It's I, in- I have, yeah. Yeah. Well, I had a white pearl Ajax and. Uh, that lasted about three months because I kept going to the drum store in Newcastle, England, seeing this Ludwig drum kit and I thought it was the and A there. And, uh, <laughs> and so my my father and my uncle uh handed together. My uncle was a drummer, my father was a pianist, so it was perfect. And um and finally, they, they bought it for me, and it was Silver, Silver Sparkle Ludwig in 1966. Lovely. I still have that drum kit.
0: Do you really?
1: Yeah, and I played on um, I played on Imagine with it, and um, My Sweet Lord, and all those hits. Wow, that was that
0: that's unbelievable! That that was your, you you bought that so quickly after just starting, and then got to use it on, um, yeah, on well, that. It
1: was a dream because you were buying the luxury version of what you should be doing. <coughs> that's that's yeah, absolutely that, astounding. That, I think it was like the Rolls Royce of drums it, you yeah. Know?
0: Do you remember the name of the shop that you bought it from? Because there's a couple of really good quality oh, drum shops.
1: In Newcastle, it was an old, it was an old established um, drum store that had been there for years. Mm. In fact, when I first started, I went there for a couple of lessons with, with one guy. And I started realising that he was trying to teach me how to play like him, and I said, stop it, yes, I don't want to play like that, it sucks. <laughs> so from then on, I kind of developed my own style.
0: So did you join a band quite quickly after starting to play?
1: Yeah, about, well, it's about three months, I think it was.
0: And that, was that yeah. the downbeats that you were, you yeah. started?
1: No, it was, it was before the downbeats. It was a couple of guys who honked around on the guitar and they'd come around and plug in in the, in the you know, living room, in the lounge, and, and uh, we'd just mess around for a while. It wasn't really serious stuff. Um, I was going to school and I had... A, I had a paper round, I had to do so. <laughs> uh, about once or twice a week, we'd, we'd just get together and create a bit of noise.
0: <laughs> and what were you listening to? What sort of songs were you trying to play?
1: Oh, it was usually, uh, it was like Shadows and Rock and Roll, Tommy Steele, and stuff like that, you know. <laughs>
0: um, and then did the the downbeats formed sort of just after that was, the downbeats were mainly, uh,
1: Beatles stuff. Okay. Uh, we used to do a, 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 a Beatles show. Um, that was, uh, you know, we all wore the Beatles suits and I was the youngest drummer in the Northeast of England. And, you know, got we got a reputation for that. And, uh, we used to play working men's clubs, and, but they'd never let me go out, out where the beer was. I had to stay backstage the whole night. <laughs> yeah. But uh, a lot of the lads in the band would bring me a half a beer back every now and then.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, I'm sure you found a way. Um, was that? I was going to say, I'm sure you found a way. I know I would have done
1: uh you know, you know, quick acid. and didn't hurt anybody. <laughs>
0: um, and at that point, did you have uh, aspirations to play music professionally, or was it just fun for you at that stage?
1: Well, I was just getting on with having fun. It was basically a lot of fun doing what I was doing. You
0: know, the downbeats. You changed names to the Blue Chips and entered a, a contest in um, in London. Um, which is where you won uh, well, your first recording contract?
1: Well, yeah, we we went to London, and we, first of all, we won the regional finals in the, in, in County Durham, all of the northeast, and then and then we we number one, we couldn't believe we won that because there was some good battlers playing. And then uh, we jumped in our putty wagon kind of thing. It was an old um, Bedford ambulance. It had lots of lipstick all over it from <laughs> girls screaming and running after us down the street. Uh, they thought that was the thing to do because we played Beatles music. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it was all covered in lipstick and... Uh, I remember it was pretty dangerous because um, the one it was two of the the guys in the band were from from a family um, from Spennymoor in uh, the northeast, and they were thought they were relatively okay mechanics and could fix things up, so they'd work for a while. And the whole back axle of the car was chained on with chains. <laughs> oh goodness. And, then, and we used to sit in that and we went all the way around them and uh, then we performed the the London Palladium. Wow. With uh, the the judges were Ringo and Silver Black. Brian Epstein, and Alan Jackson. I don't know if you remember that.
0: No. You're
1: he, I... not old enough, I don't <laughs> he, was a, he was a well-known DJ guy on the radio.
0: Yeah. Okay. That must have... I mean, how did that feel? Is, what were you then, about 16? Um... I uh, yeah, something like
1: that.
0: Fifteen or sixteen. How did it feel to be performing in front of you know Brian Epstein and Ringo and Anzilla Black, for that matter? Uh, and presumably these are people you'd listen to and look up, looked up to, and um, you know, wanted to emulate. And...
1: <laughs> actually, um, we actually um. Played a little bit of uh, music that we wrote between us. Okay. One of the songs we played was like that. It was a, uh, it was uh, original. So, and then a mixture of a couple of other Beatles songs, and and then uh, to our surprise, we won the whole damn thing. It was unbelievable. <laughs> Um, and then we we got our little trophy, jumped in the van again, and went back to County Durham. That's unbelievable. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, we, obviously we started getting lots of gigs. We were playing seven or eight times a week, so in, even Saturday afternoon. And then uh, we built up. A reputation, but then you know, all my exams and stuff came at school, and uh, my GCE, you know, all that stuff, and and uh, they made me curb down how many nights playing I was doing,
0: hmm. and then the
1: the uh, the the, the uh, teachers knew. That I was in the band and uh, they kept an eye on me, and especially the math teacher. I mean, he got he got um, he got pretty upset at me, and he used because I I was actually making more than him when I was about that age.
0: <laughs> and he he didn't like it at all. Wow! So so. Did you, um, did you have a recording contract at that point? Had you done any recording?
1: Uh, well, when we did that, we won a recording contract um, uh, with, what was the name of the guy? It wasn't Mickey Mouse. It was the guy that did Downtown. Okay. two was Clark. Anyhow, he was supposed to be our producer and... And it was with Pi Records.
0: <laughs> and do you the remember the, the name of the studio you went to?
2: Um, I
1: think we went to Decca. Okay. In the very, very early days, yeah.
0: And do you remember anything from th- that session? I mean, was that the first time you'd ever done any recording?
1: And now, the first recording we did was um in Newcastle, where you had a um we all went in there, and um, you could pay money uh, to have an acetate made, you know they They went straight from the microphone straight onto the disc. There was no mixing. You just mixed it through a desk that you just played the song and it went, it cut it straight under the disc. Okay. And I remember we got one each and um, my mother, before she died, she still had that somewhere, but I don't know where it is now. And it, the song was by Bonnie from
0: the Beatles.
1: You know, the Beatles did it. Yeah. it's an old
0: song. Yeah, that was it. Oh, cool. And so was the. When you went to record for DECA, was that a a bit... That must have been a, a fairly significant step up in terms yeah, of quality.
1: I, I don't remember that much about that, actually. I only went in there and we recorded a... a song that I didn't think it was very good, but um, it was kind of slapstick, and, you know, and... Um, that
0: was it, really. We went back home. <laughs> uh, nothing came of it all at right. all. So the next um, kind of big landmark I've, I've noted um, in sort of my timeline of, of your career is joining Billy Fury's band. But what happened between the, the sort of um, the Blue Chips, as they were called then, and, and joining Billy Fury?
1: Yeah, uh, well... We were still doing gigs with the blue chips, and we got a pretty good reputation. And um, I have no idea why we called it the blue chips, but I used to wonder what it meant, blue chips and all this stuff. <laughs> Anyhow, um, yeah, that kind of petered out because... Um, the, I think what happened around that time was when I got off to play with Billy Fury um, with his backing band called The Gamblers. Yeah. It was a band from Newcastle.
0: Oh, okay, because Billy Fury was, was from Liverpool, wasn't he? And, and uh, so his backing band was Newcastle based, and that's where the link was.
1: Yeah, but uh, Billy Fury, I only ever did two weeks of cabaret with Billy Fury. Okay. And, and I always remember Billy Fury because his hands were the biggest hands I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> they were huge, and that's why he used to do all that stuff with his hands in front of his face all the time. <laughs>
0: And so were you still playing around the north of England at that point or had you gone further afield?
1: Well, uh, with the gamblers, we didn't do much else but back him and then we went off to Germany, which my mother was very really scared to do, but she let me go. So uh, she really helped my career along as I would have been staying. But then I came, you know, I was still... I went to college. I went to, te- they call it technical college.
0: Yeah. And,
1: yeah. and uh, I was studying to be a bloody architect. <laughs> that was my fourth school, was technical drawing. Oh. Ah. So, uh, and uh, that and geography, and I was pretty good at math, which helped a lot later in playing the drums.
0: Yeah, I, I can imagine. I think they say um, good mathematicians, well, either musicians make good mathematicians or the other way around.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I think the math really helped me a lot with uh, creating stuff and playing with yes, because you have to count a lot of weird
0: time signatures, stuff like that. So it helped me down the line. So once you'd finished um, playing with, uh, with Billy Fury, um, I've got the, the sort of bridge between there and, and getting the, the sort of infamous call from Lennon. Um, were you, you working with Ginger Baker's band Air Force at that point?
1: No, prior to that, I was with my own band. Um, kind of the remnants of all that stuff, the gamblers, And then we formed this other band of elite musicians from the Northeast. And we all went to London to make a fortune and all that kind of stuff, you know. And uh, much to our dismay, it was really hard work for a long time. And uh, never really quite made it. But, you know, we were all living in the same house. I was cooking... Meals my mother taught me to cook at an early age, so I'd make beef stew every every weekend for us all to live on <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know that lasted about three days, and all <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was one it was like a lot of bands in England that grew up to be really good, like the traffic and you know all of those kind of bands lived in a house in the country and all we did every day is get up and play music from lunchtime till we went to bed
0: <laughs> very cool what a way to live a
1: lot of proficient english
0: musicians got to be really good <laughs> so then what um what were you doing so as i've sort of mentioned i'm leading up to so 1969, when you got the, the call from Lennon to go and over to Toronto, what were you doing Um, sort of in the months prior to that?
1: I We, we were kind of like doing a lot of gigs around London, and we were based out of Wembley. Okay. Uh, and we all lived in the house, the same house again, and, you know, obviously people experimenting with smoking weed and, you know all that kind of stuff. and uh, um, We we got a good reputation in, in London clubs for um, uh, being a really good band. We played a lot of kind of R&B and Salmon and Dave and stuff like that. And we had a great uh, singer who was, Anglo-Indian guy, and he had a really, really great voice. In fact, he sings on on my first solo album. Oh wow! Yeah, I don't know if you've heard that. Have you, Ramshackle?
0: No, I'm i I'm embarrassed to say I haven't heard it.
1: Okay, there's some interesting. That will give you the gist of what the band was proficient at and how good we sounded. It was an eight-piece band. We had three, three people on the horn section. And it was really, really cool on stage.
0: All right. I'll, I'm definitely going to have a listen to that. And I'll I'll put some links into the, the notes for this show so that other people can go and find it.
1: It came out in 76. 76.
0: Super. Okay, I'll find it. Um, uh, it
1: came uh, out on Atlantic, actually, because... At that period of time, everybody in the S made solo albums, and I decided to, after working on all this music for many years without them, it was a a good vehicle for me to get that music out to the public.
0: Yeah. Okay. I'm. Mean, I'm gonna have a listen, um, and I'll definitely link to that. So then. Um... I'm, I'm still sort of hovering around this phone call. Were you? Did it? Did it come completely out of the blue, or were you? Were you moving in circles that were connected with? Um...
1: Well, I I knew a couple of people in Apple, and I kind of I occasionally would go down and hang around in Apple, and it, you know, in uh, where was it in? What's the name of the street with the tailors on it in London? <clears throat> right off of Oxford Street. Anyhow, that's where Apple was, the headquarters. And um it was kind of free free to come and go kind of place for a lot of quite a few musicians. I mean, you go in there and you could hang around in in different rooms and uh occasionally, on a wild occasion, you'd hit one of the beetles would come walking through. So I, I I had a couple of friends who worked there and we used to go there and go for a pint and that kind of stuff, you know? And um, I figured they knew my name from that, but then I heard that um, John saw me playing with that band I'm talking about in a club but I never knew he was there and I never saw him but um, that's how he saw me play and he when he came to do live piece in, in Toronto um, he, he I got a call from him and, and it was light up and blue because I, I I didn't think it was him and I put the phone down on the <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then uh, you called back you said no it's me I've got a gig tomorrow will you do it kind of thing and um, so uh, that's how that kind of came about next thing I know I'm going to the airport in a limo and, and it was all really, really it was all kind of over in two days I went There we got, jumped on the plane, rehearsed on the plane, and went and played in front of 25,000 people. And then turned around, left, and got on the plane,
0: and came back to
1: England, and that was that.
0: (laughs) What was going on in in your mind, having grown up playing um, Beatles covers, and suddenly... I say suddenly. I mean, it it sounds like it's it's suddenly, but it happens very fast. You're playing with John Lennon. I mean, there's songs that you played on that on that album that um, are Beatles songs that presumably, like Dizzy Miss Lizzy, Presumably, you'd played that already live, um, perhaps before with with cover bands, and um, and you were there doing it with an actual Beatle, and they were recording it too. I mean, no pressure.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it was. I don't know. I must have got a relatively good reputation of being a good, a good drums, a good player, and uh, and um, I seem to just kind of have a knack of knowing what to play when and just fitting in with what was necessary for the song, and I. I firmly believe that still today, you know.
0: Did it feel um, Did it feel natural um, to sort of step into to that role in that band with those people? Um, I mean, I, I guess I guess you would you would have had some nerves, but you must have been yeah, confident uh, enough in your abilities.
1: I was only twenty years old. You've got to remember at this fine I was only twenty years old, and uh, um, I was kind of just still growing up in the music industry. And uh, I didn't really realise what I was doing at the time. I just got up with it and knew when they counted for I came in and played and, and then all of a sudden that was kind of over. But um, I still had a reputation for being able to adapt pretty easily.
0: Did anything change for you? Um, from coming home, once you came home from that session, uh, from that, uh, sorry, concert, did any, did we, was it just business as usual back working with the band again? Um, I'm sort of leading up to going into the studio to record. We um... were
1: still working with the band, doing that, but I do the occasional session and then the sessions got to be more and more and more working in the studio and playing an album. So I played, I must have played on 60 albums after that. Oh, wow. The next couple of years or three years. And uh, I got a reputation as a studio musician in London. And, you know, I spend the money half the time keeping the band alive. <laughs> my own band, it was, just, it was like I could, could, you know, go out to work and bring the bacon home and keep everybody alive so we could play good music.
0: What were the recording sessions like? Um, I mean, aside from, from some of the, the, the bigger albums, which I'd like to talk about, but they're just the day-to-day sessions that, you know, you get a call to go and play on an artist's album and you turn up to the studio, what, what was the um, sort of process like of learning the material and, and was, it, was it just a day's work for you?
1: Well, you know, I used to, in a few of the sessions, not all of them, um, they give me the charts and stuff like that. And I kind of, I, because I played the piano, I could read the charts to a degree, and I wasn't great at it. And uh, most of it was just rubbish because you can't have a guy who plays violin right for drums. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd say, this is rubbish. And, I, and I, uh, half the time, the artist, or whoever I was working with, I'd say, how about this? This is much better. And they'd go, sure, that's so much better. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just gave up in the end and did my own thing.
0: (laughs) Um, Well, it stood you in good stead, it sounds like, for sure. Do you remember, um, were you taking any notice of the way they were micing your kit up, or any of the sort of technical sides of the recording, or were you just focusing on playing?
1: I did, I did to a degree, but I was mostly interested in the artistic side of making the songs sound good. Um, but I did gain knowledge of the desk and you know mixing and to a certain degree, but I didn't excel at it.
0: Okay. Um. So I'd like to talk a little bit about um a couple of the, the, the sort of obvious, obvious seminal albums that you've played on. So in 1970, so, so not long after um, doing the concert with John, you, you played on All Things Must Pass, and presumably that was a little different. The sessions for that came about differently to just a, a run-of-the-mill um, artist session that you would have done. Yeah. Um, well,
1: I got to know George through playing with John I, um, imagine it was the first album I met, George. He used to come to the studio and we'd all eat dinner every night about seven o'clock. And I would sit next to George sometimes and we stuck up with a, a relationship. And what a wonderful guy he was. So, and then when he decided to make an album, he called me and I'd turn up every day. <laughs> uh, We'd all turn up every day and we'd decide who's gonna play what and all this stuff, so we all just liked to play with me and um I ended up playing on about two thirds of that album
0: um, what were those sessions like i've i've um i mean i'm sure- I'm sure I can say it I've heard some of the the bootleg recordings of of it, and they sound like quite enjoyable fun sessions to have been there for, just almost. A bit yeah, of a jam it, session.
1: It, yeah, it was kind of like a team of people turned up every day, and with one object it was to make a great, great sounding track that day. And um, we spend time and detail over most tracks, but some tracks were very instant.
0: You know. Do you um? Do you remember what kit you were using at that time? Was that the Ludwig still?
1: Thank you. Same kit I'm talking about, yeah.
0: Wow, I I, I find that unbelievable that that that, that's the, that 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 you bought that kit three months after pl- starting playing, and here you are using it on a George Harrison record. That's...
1: I, I, I played that kit for a lot of years, and I used to tell people this is an interesting drumming fact. <laughs> um, in the in the sixties. Um, Ludwig used to paint the inside of the bass um, white right yeah. and I used to think, oh that's why it's louder it's white <laughs> <laughs>
0: the, <laughs> and, re- the, the sound so, reflects around on the way
1: <laughs> and you get a lot of people going no and I said yeah it's white so it sounds louder and anyhow um Half the people didn't believe me, but uh, some people did. They painted them the size of their drums white to get them louder.
0: <laughs> it's um, I don't <clears throat> don't know what year Gret started to do the the silver one, didn't they? Maybe it was a bit of a fad for it. Yeah. Um.
1: Yeah. So what yeah, do you? I had Gretsch drum kit once, and uh, I, I bought the Gretsch drum kit, and then. The first time I ever played it, I broke a broke a couple <laughs> of things, and I said, "I don't like Gretsch at all. Well, I just break them."
0: <laughs> I think they
1: would now be known to be more of a jazz drum kit.
0: Yeah, I, I am. Um, I grew up listening to a lot of jazz, and I, I can remember, I can picture. Every every jazz drummer I picture has a Gretsch kit, and then I always have L- uh, Ringo in my head using a Ludwig kit, and then that you know that one Ludwig for pop and rock, and uh, Gretsch for jazz. I had,
1: had a reputation for being very solid and good rock and roll drum kit.
0: Yeah, do you remember what cymbals you were using at that time?
1: Uh, Zildjian. I started using Zildjian the same time as I got Ludwig.
0: Okay, so was it the Avidis series? The same thing.
1: Only I, only I have about twenty-five drum kits now. <laughs> well, you, they you... kept, they kept giving them to me, and I said, no, I, I don't want another one. I've got enough to last me a lifetime."
0: <laughs> Where'd you keep I them thought... all?
1: <laughs> well, I, I still have a lot of drum kits and. I've got one storage unit in, in Seattle. It's full of drum kits. Wow. Um, but, um, you know, they kept giving me different colors because they wanted me to use them with Yes to get the publicity for it. So um, I really could ask Ludwig for anything they want, and I still count to this day, but I don't abuse it.
0: Yeah.
1: A lot you know, a lot of
0: drummers would abuse that situation. But I never have, so um I'd I'd like to hear what um what you remember of the Imagine sessions with Lennon. I mean that's a that's one of the kind of most respected albums in history and to have been a part of that is, is very, very special. So I'd I'd love to know what you remember of that time.
1: Yeah, I remember um A lot about the sessions because I could just, the main thing I remember about the sessions was the vibe in the room. Um, In, you know, every song we we played, John would give us the lyrics beforehand and he'd say, look, these are the lyrics, this is what you're going to say to the world. Yeah, uh, do you want to play on it or not? And you know, um, he always gave us the option, which is very cool to start with.
0: That's really, really interesting. I, um, what a, a almost like a, a quite a lovely way to do it. That, um, so you you're understanding the emotion behind the song before you've even played on it.
1: Yeah, exactly. You, you know, you, you it would he wanted people to understand the words. I think he was mainly referring to a a a particularly one song, uh, which was "How Do You Sleep at Night?" Because he wrote it about Paul. (laughs) So I think he he felt a little bit. um, I don't want you to get in trouble with Paul, kind of thing, you know. But I didn't really know Paul. I knew all the rest of the Beatles, including Ringo, but only
0: years later I got no call. Yeah. What was, um, I can imagine those sessions as being quite a relaxed atmosphere. Um, is Would you say that that was the case?
1: Yeah. It was very relaxed, and but John was certainly driven by, uh, him and Yoko and the, the message they wanted to get out in a lot of that music, so that was the main focus
0: in the end. And um, do you remember anything? Uh, this is kind of the the nerdy side of me coming out. But I, I one, do you remember do you remember anything about this sort of how the way your kit was mic'd? was there a lot of mics, or was it just sort of mono, single overhead, or um, well,
1: not very basic miking? um you know two two overheads bass drum snare drum and um you know like a shoe 57 on all the all the uh trons and no mic in top and bottom head it was all just mic from the top in those days
0: yeah and um I just think the um, drum sound on that record is so full and rich, and I'm I'm sure a lot of that's to do with the your playing obviously, and and the drums themselves, um, and the way. Well,
1: that- oh, oh, um Phil Spector was really good at getting drum sounds. I think um, he he or oh, the engineer was kind of thing, but he he knew what he wanted to hear. Phil Spector.
0: I think that's what they. One of the things that I I always think it makes a great producer is somebody that knows what they that can envision what they want in their mind's eye before they come and get to it, and, and that sounds like what you're describing in Phil Spector. Yeah, it's like,
1: uh, like Trevor Horn, uh, when he was in 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 Yes, he had a good ear for the kind of drum song he wanted, mm. and Trevor Laban as well was another person in the '80s with Yes who really knew his drum
0: sounds. Were you, you, were you using any... I, I apologise for the nerdiness of this question, but were you, were you dampening the drums at all at that point or was it, were they wide open?
1: I needed dampening. You know, you've got to drum, you've got to let it sing and, and let it resonate. Um, and all this dampening was... I guess it was good for certain songs and that yeah, I just like, and I still do today, to have a real, real live drum kind uh, 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 You know, if they if they want to do that, then they can find other ways of doing it. Because I think when you have a live sound at the source, you can mess with it later if you want to. But I prefer a live sound, and. Um, not
0: damp and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, were were you? Um, so the the songs that you played on. I mean, this. I guess this is an a, an open question for. I'm I'm still thinking about the uh, the All Things Must Pass album and Imagine. I'm just interested in the creative process about them. Were Were you getting into the studio and and would was John playing a song for you and you jammed it and and then sort of. Push record, or um, were you sort of coming up with parts in the moment that were being recorded? That at the same point?
1: Yeah, yeah. All I ever re- remember John saying, it, uh, um, "I think it stems from Instant Karma when I played on that, right?" Because you know the drum break in Instant Karma that's kind of out of meter. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I kept doing that, and someone would look at me going, "He kind of have a puzzled look at his face. <laughs> and I thought, well, I wonder if I'm doing it right. Not, you know. And then, in the end, he came up to me and he said, Al, oh, I have no idea what you're doing, but keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> uh well, my my um, attitude towards drums at that time was I used to like to play drum breaks that were out of meter with the general uh, rhythm of the track, as it were. So you just step aside for a moment, and then you get back into the track, and that's where all that came from.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. I I um. I enjoy that kind of um, that kind of drum break where you you're not sure where one's gone anymore, and then when it comes back in, it's quite satisfying to pick up the beat again at, at a point where you were expecting.
1: I was expecting. it from a shuffle beat, and then playing a rock and roll beat in the middle of it, and uh, and then stepping back into the shuffle beat, but being able to do it instantly.
0: <laughs> Did you um, I. Did you feel any um, any pressure as a young man, having grown up with Ringo's playing, to 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 live up to any of that, or were you just not not worried about any any? um, uh...
1: No, I do adapt. uh, In in my teenage years, I started listening to a lot to a kind of weather report and. Jazz Fusion bands and, you know, Jack Dijonette and a lot of kind of great drummers from that kind of era. Lenny White was one of my favorite drummers. Okay. Um, You know, way back then. Um, So, you know... um, and as it happens, I met him a couple of times later in in life, and he's really a cool guy, really nice guy. Um, Alphonse Mouzon, um, a lot of those kind of players, so they affected my my style of drumming from the side at a distance, but I still maintained the rock and roll feel and tried to mixed both styles together and um that became very successful for
0: yeah the have you having said that kind of answers a question that I was going to ask a um sort of a further down the the timeline, but that it feels like it was a natural progression to to the kind of music that yes played um given what you just said you were listening to um
1: well, I, I, it um Really valuable when I got into the yes and I had to play things like first thing I had to learn was close to the edge, which freaked me out. So, um, which is a complete mixture of, of both things, you know. I mean, every, the whole beginning of the song is in 12 8. And then, <laughs> then it meanders off into rock and roll and all kinds of stuff. Um, <laughs> that was all the only, the the iceberg to other stuff we came up is is uh, that band carried on.
0: Were you aware of Yes as a band before you were asked to join them? Was that, sorry? Were you aware of Yes before you got the call to join them? Well,
1: I uh, I was um, sharing an apartment with the offered, who was Yes's producer.
0: <laughs> okay, so yeah,
1: <laughs> the first three albums. So, um, I yeah, I was familiar with them, and I saw them on stage a couple of times, but not that much. I just knew they had a great organ sound, and. Uh, And the music was different but good that, you know, I I didn't put it into a category, really, because a lot of people label yes music that it is its own category, really, because it's so influenced by a lot of different kinds of music.
0: Uh, absolutely i think that's that's exactly how i describe it and and it was another one of those situations where you got the call to do the shows with a well a handful of days notice three three days notice was it before starting touring in in usa
1: Um, well i didn't get get the call um i was playing with joe crocker at the time and i was uh we will finish it. with was the last night of the Joe Cocker Tour of Europe, Mad Dogs and Englishmen. And, uh, and my business manager, a guy kind of looked after business stuff for me, called me. He said, Alan, jump on a plane in the morning. Get straight back here as quick as possible. Uh, yes, want you to join them. And, and I went, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I had prior experiences, yes, because um, they were rehearsing um, in in a, uh, a small sewing shop in, in Shepherd's Bush. And I was out with Eddie one night, and he said he had to pass by the studio, so I went by with him. And that night, Bill, Bill Ruford wasn't... Um, they were having problems with him in the band, and I think he was in the process of starting King Crimson. And um, I went down there and Bill left, and he said, I have to go and have dinner. And and they were all stood there with the guitars on and I, and then Eddie said, Well, why don't, and it was before they recorded Close to the Edge. And um the song was Siberian and which is a bar of eight and bar seven, bar eight, bar seven <laughs> and um Eddie said, I don't I like to play that kind of stuff. Do you wanna just sit in and so I played through the song with them, and, and they must have left some kind of impression. And uh, a couple of days later, they asked me to join them.
0: What was the um? So I kind of picture your career up until that point as um, you're working with the club band and dipping in and out doing sessions, and then now you're joining a fairly established um band. Did it feel quite a comfortable thing?
1: They weren't completely established at that point. They, they were just on the brink of playing bigger, bigger auditoriums, uh, you know, going from like large theaters into small arenas. Okay. It was kind of at that stage of the man's career that um, yeah and throughout that uh, coast close the edge tour that we did the band grew quite a lot and uh, then we ended up by playing big arenas like Madison Square Gardens and stuff like that
0: yeah was was it um at the point where you went off to do that tour I guess it was a a full-time job i know you've obviously played with them ever since and and the long the longest running member of the band but would, did it feel quite comfortable joining joining a project that was um, yeah. i mean at the time yeah. you didn't know it was going to be sort of forever but
1: I, I must say the band made me feel accommodated you know because they knew it was no um no easy task to step in and three days learning the whole repertoire, you know, we were, um, all first three albums, really. And, and I don't know. I, we were all really nervous, um, especially with Chris Grier. who was sweating bullets. <laughs> um, and uh, we, we, we got on stage and... Um, and I remember the sense of feeling when we came up and thinking, ah, I think I got everything right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Chris said, I think you got everything right. But, you know, on the second, third, and fourth gig, um, I, <laughs> well, things start. I started making more and more mistakes. But by about the fourth gig, I pulled it all back together. And, <laughs> and I, I said, well, I'll stay in the van for three months or um, you, you can judge me with the van for three months. And, um, and uh." And then we'll work it out from there, see if it's both happy. And, oh my God, I'm looking at my bird tree there outside. It's got a woodpecker on it. <laughs> now we stay
0: chilling holes in the wood. <laughs> um, uh, hey, sorry about that. No, you're no, fine. You- I don't think I've ever seen a woodpecker in the in the wild before.
2: The biggest. It's actually not much seed left, and they're gonna they're gonna get it all. There's two of them. That's amazing. Yeah, I know we we're, we're out
1: here. Way we're doing
2: this. I know. I'm gonna let you go. I'm just saying we're of out in the country at the foot of the mountains. Our house. So we're you know one of our activities we've taken up during COVID was bird watching.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we get a few here. I. I... I have a um, a little three year old girl, and we have a robin that comes to visit our garden occasionally, and she loves it.
1: Oh well, Gigi's got a robin that's in front and back of her house, and he's been coming for months.
0: <laughs> um, what What did the change feel like? Um, I'm I'm assuming that when you were doing the club circuit, um, even. I guess around the late 60s, early 70s, that you were playing sort of two, three-minute songs, and then suddenly you're on stage playing 10, 11, 12-minute kind of medleys. Uh,
1: It just became the norm, really. Um, I got really used to it, and uh, it was more like telling a story, you know. Um, Every song, and a lot of Yes songs, um, that are really long like that. Have a recurrent theme that's played in different ways and shapes and form, you know. Yeah. And um, all you gotta do is remember which one comes next.
0: <laughs> um, I I'm really conscious of uh of taking up more of your time, especially seeing as we started a little late. Um, and I'm I really appreciate you coming to speak to me. It's it's so interesting okay. hearing your stories. Okay.
1: I well, we're in amid the COVID lockdown, as it were, to a degree. It's a bit bad now, but still you've got to be careful.
0: well, as, as we know, at least you can get a pint. i'm I'm very jealous of that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's all right. I don't drink that much I. I'll have one this afternoon and one this evening. That's about enough for me nowadays.
0: Lovely. Um, just, just fi- finally, I know um, you're involved in a, a fair few um, organizations promoting the arts up in Seattle now. Is that, is that how you're spending most of your time um, sort of in, are you it sounds like you're inputting back into the, commu- the music community up in Seattle?
1: Yeah. With community stuff, yeah, I find myself doing a lot of kind of charity shows and um events. I'll just turn up and go there so, and people really respect what you've done. because um, Seattle's a pretty musical city. I
2: that music matters
1: that I know, yeah. I think you're talking about music matters. Um <laughs> It's it's music aid northwest. That's and right. Yeah, we we started that uh, how many years ago now? About ten, yeah, twelve, fifteen years ago, and um, it's doing really well. We we don't have as much time to do it as we used to, but
2: um, we have a license plate. Sorry, he's not explaining it we have a license plate we started for uh, it says music matters and all the, um, the special license plate. When you get it on your car, a percentage goes to, we have a committee that gives out grant money and it goes to support a music education in our schools all over the state of Washington. Oh,
0: it's state amazing.
2: License. So it's grown over the years and it's, doing really well now and I have to say there's a lot of satisfaction driving down the road when you see our license plate on other cars and you know they're all supporting music education so I think that's maybe what you're referring to. Yeah
1: that's what you know um, so I think it, what it is is when you get a a new number plate for your car in America you have to do Um, it's mandatory but And you can pay thirty dollars extra, get a specialized one, Um, and we have one that's got music matters on it. And uh, I think it's about thirty back every time, and that goes into a fund, just you know, to give to schools for music education. So, as we all know. First thing they cut at school is the music, you know, and uh, it's not good.
0: Absolutely. I'm- I
2: think we, I'm on the committee that um, reviews the grant requests. And I think this last year we gave away over $120,000. Wow. Schools. So it's uh, it's going every year. It's perpetual. So that's, um, yeah, it's something. Not everything, but something. If everybody does a little, you know, it helps.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it it really rang true with me. And I, I um I I kind of gave in on I I did some school um one to one teaching when I first started in sort of my music career and and it it died a death. And then school music teaching is going downhill. So when I when I read it on on um, Alan's website, it really struck a chord with me. So I wanted to bring it up because I think it's amazing that you're taking an interest in it and doing something about it.
1: Yeah, we've been, we've been doing yeah. it for quite a lot it's of years. It's that yeah. important, yeah. It's that important. Because, um, you know, it's, it's a proven fact that um, your academic um, life at school, is, a, when you play a music in, instrument, seems to be much better, and the percentages show that.
0: I I think that's right. That you know they say kids concentrate better when they're learning. They they learn uh, when they're learning an instrument. They focus in lessons better. Behavior's better. um, Everything's better.
2: Yeah, it it, it, it enhances your whole education.
1: it's like when you get told when you're a kid. You know, it's good to play two instruments instead of one. The one always reflects on the other and it it really helps. It's the same, same kind of analogy.
0: Exactly. Um, I'll let you get on with your day. I know it's approaching lunchtime and I, I thank you again um, for speaking to me. It has been a real privilege and I, I really appreciate you taking the time. So there we are, Alan White. Um, and as usual, I hope that you enjoyed listening to that conversation as uh, much as I enjoyed having it. Um, I'm sure you'll agree Alan is just a really unassuming chap and um incredibly talented and it's so amazing to um to hear some of those stories um and he seemed uh, very candid in the way that he uh, talked about his experiences um so uh next week I am chatting to um Rich Bagano, who is the drummer for the Fab foe. Um, I did warn you, we have a fairly drum-heavy few (laughs) few episodes coming up, um, which I hope that you're finding interesting. As I said last time, I know a lot of the artists I work with enjoy talking drums, even if they don't play drums themselves. Um, So anyway, yeah, Rich Pagano plays with the Fab Faux, and he also runs um, a course uh, called The Art of Recording Classic Drums um, in New York. And uh, he's a ridiculously talented guy. He's a writer and he's a drummer. Um, I mean composer writer um and uh, recording engineer and producer just ridiculous and there's a it's a bit of a technical episode there's a lot of technical information there so it's definitely one to get your uh, your pens and papers out um and again rich is super generous with his knowledge and his time um so that's that, um, which only leaves me to say, if you'd like to contact me at all, um, my email address is joe at all you need is drums, and you can find out more about me and the the drum sessions I do and that kind of thing at www.allyouneedisdrums.com. Um, in fact, while I'm here, I should mention, I, I've had a few emails from people who listen to the podcast and who also subscribe to the stems that I do, um, asking whether or not I offer bespoke drum services for people's tracks and that is exactly what I do <laughs> when I'm not recording this podcast and I'm not um making drum stems you know Beatles covers drum stems um I spend most of my time recording drums on other people's tracks so if that's something that interests you then go and visit my website and have a look um and feel free to get in touch um because I'd love to hear your music um yeah and uh, if, if you have ideas for guests for this or feedback for the podcast then uh, definitely get in touch with me um, I'd like to say my usual thank yous to Mr. Joe Kane who was on last uh, episode for um, producing the incredible intro and outro music um, and also a big thank you to my good friend David Henshaw for the beautiful artwork that he supplies um, and have a lovely and safe couple of weeks and I will speak to you soon goodbye